Hello and welcome to the second episode of Activist Listening. Today we are talking about the staff wages protest at Middlebury College in 2019. In early December 2019, a year when we could all gather in crowded places, I walked into a packed Mead Chapel here at Middlebury, where about 200 students were gathered to protest for higher staff wages. The protest was spurred on by a number of events at Middlebury that semester, including news of many members of staff calling for a union after the workforce planning initiative was revealed to be a thinly veiled layoff plan, as well as that fall semester having a disturbingly high number of vandalism incidents across campus, where staff members had to clean up after reckless and inconsiderate students. These events spurred a number of caring students to organize on behalf of the student body to one, show support for the Middlebury staff in the moment, and two, try to show student solidarity with staff causes that have been going on for years. The argument for raising staff wages came from an early January 2019 issue of the campus that showed how 15% of staff jobs on campus were compensated at below the calculated living wage for Addison County. Wages for entry level jobs on this campus were set at $11 an hour when the Addison County living wage is closer to $19 an hour. This is an enormous difference for any job and especially for people who that semester in particular were feeling taken advantage of and disrespected by student vandalisms and also feared for job stability during mass layoffs. Although the Middlebury administration started looking into raising staff wages in July of 2019, according to Staff Council President Tim Parsons, the student actions really pushed the administration into mobilizing for change. Additionally, prior to the protest, the college was looking at raising wages to the market rate but students pushed them to consider raising them to the living wage. A month after the protest, the college raised the wages for the lowest paid band of workers. At a school where so many of us feel busy all of the time and where the divide between staff and student can feel very forced and stark, it was really moving to see so many students pouring out in the snow to, so to show support for staff wages and solidarity with their movement. So today I have joining me one of the leaders of that protest and a dear friend of mine, Celia Gottlieb. Hi, Celia. Thank you so much for coming. Of course. Yeah, so I'm just like really excited to talk with you about this, um, this protest that you were part of and that I had like, the privilege of showing up to as well. Um, I thought it was like a really moving form of solidarity and strength um, across communities that we don't often see at Middlebury. I feel like we're so often siloed into you know, student, faculty, staff as three very separate things. Um, and this is a really, cool way to see students supporting a part of this community that we don't usually see. So I'm gonna start off with just a little get to know you round. I call it the slow round. And I'm gonna ask just a, a couple of questions that are some of my favorite questions. Most of them I stole from our race rhetoric and protest class. So yeah, let's, uh, so the first one is my absolute favorite question ever, which is what is your most controversial non-political opinion? Okay. So I know Professor Sanchez is going to be listening to this um, and he's going to hate what I have to say. Oh, I no. don't like, I don't like TV or movies. Um, this is usually like my go-to Tinder message as well. Uh, when people are like, oh, you're so perfect. I'm like, well, just you wait. I don't like television. Um, and God, does that piss people off? 
Um, I grew up in one of those no screen homes and didn't have a TV until I was like 15. So it just never caught on for me. And one of my best friends is a film major. I could never pay attention. Of course, there are exceptions. Professor Sanchez's documentary, uh, <laughs> among others. Uh, I like you know the new girl in the office and euphoria like I have taste but I really don't like tv that's so funny because I also grew up in a big no screens house and I feel like I did the opposite route of like I would search out screens wherever I could find them like I would just go to my friend's houses and watch like hours and hours of tv so that's so interesting that we like uh split there I had that phase but once I, you know, I figured it out for like two months. I was like, this isn't for me. Cool. I'm sure your eyes are a lot better than mine are. <laughs> so my second question is, when did you first become aware of protests? Like either what they are, what they do, or just um, the experience of them? Yeah, so I was really thinking about this question deeply. Um, and I realized that I used to go to work with my dad on weekends. Um, and we, his store was on Main Street, so we would drive from home through town, and there were always protesters outside our public library. Um, and most of them were anti-war, pro-peace, um, food not bombs type affiliation protests. And it was all these like, 60 plus hippies outside of the library with their signs saying like honk for peace and my dad always laid on that horn um, and mm -hmm. I was you know, a very curious child who always had lots of questions probably about things I shouldn't have questions about um, but this was one of those things that I always you know I was like well what do those signs say dad and why are you laying on your horn and like what does this have to do with us um, and it really just showed me how um, showing up in a space like that can just make people question why you're there um, and even a three or four year old is going to be like, hey, dad, like, what's that about? Um, and the, the power that that really can have in building a consciousness. That's so cool. I hadn't really thought about protests in that sense of just like, just being there starts um, like a question asking process. I love that. Um, and my last little question for this get to know you round is when did you first consider yourself an activist, if you do consider yourself an activist? Yeah, um, well, my mom would say that it started in second grade. It's when I started creating problems. Um, I stopped saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Oh my um, God, scandal. It was a scandal, uh, especially in my predominantly Italian Catholic public school. Did not go over well. Uh, and it was partially because I was a contrarian. Uh, so that had an aspect to do with it. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm just doing this because everyone else is doing it. And no one really explained to me why we do it. And um, no one had really proven to me yet that God existed, still waiting for that. Um, so I was just- A lot like, of people are still waiting for that. Yeah, I was like, so under God, like, why am I saying that? I don't believe in that. Um, and then I also was just constantly through those conversations with my parents and what I was observing and honestly how I was treated in school um, as the only Jewish student in my school. I was like, I'm not seeing justice for all already, you know, even as a seven year old. Um, and <laughs> I just stopped saying it. And I did not say it until my senior year of high school, I was 
in the principal's office, not because I had been causing trouble, but because the principal and I were weirdly friends. Um, and he was like, oh, I got to run to a meeting. Can you do the morning announcements? And I was like, no, I, I can't do the morning announcements. I will not say the Pledge of Allegiance. And he was like, no, you have to go do them. And I got forced into saying the Pledge of Allegiance for the first time in like 12 years because I had to say it on the megaphone to the entire school. And I have never gotten so lit up by my classmates in my life. I like walk into first period class and everyone's like pointing and laughing at me because I mean, small schools in a rural town, like we've been all been going to school together for way too long at this point. And they're like, Celia said the pledge. And I like still bring it up when I see him in the grocery store. I'm like, how dare you? Brutal. Did you like cross <laughs> all your fingers and toes? Um, I actually did. I am one of those people who like, nice. like it doesn't count. <laughs> um, that's dope. I feel like that's actually so interesting because I spoke with Leaf last week and they also said that they had really, really early memories of like getting involved in contrarian movements. So I wonder if there's like a connection between people like confidently leading movements and how young they get involved in. It's interesting. Um, so yeah, speaking of you confidently leading movements, um, so two, a year and a half ago, I have no concept of time anymore, but I think it was a year and a half ago. Two years. years. Two years. Oh, Christ. Maybe okay. a year and a half. I, don't ask me. Clearly, we're in the same boat. <laughs> no idea. Uh, there was a, a protest on campus for staff wages. And I recall, as I said in the intro, just walking into Mead Chapel because I heard about it a lot. I heard, there, I mean, there were posters all over campus and people talking about it, that uh, there was going to be a march to show solidarity with the staff and for their wages. So I wanted to talk to you about that mostly. And as I said, a lot of those questions before came out of race rhetoric and protest. And I understand that this protest was part of the final project of that class, correct? Yeah, there were a few articles in the campus about unionizing efforts. And um, I actually, my sophomore year, I got really close with my custodian on uh, my floor and like we would talk for honestly like hours a week um, and along with that like some conversation I, I had had with um, just like general staff people I came in contact with um, all sort of culminated along with this class into the protest. Oh super interesting yeah um, so I'm assuming that like yeah that helped my next question is like what made you want to run this protest but um, Alongside that, like, did you feel like there were tools from the class that helped you run this protest? Like, what did you learn from the class that helped you build momentum? Yeah, I found the course to be really helpful um, when it came to thinking about messaging and understanding the rhetorical school uh, tools and clarity of language. Um, you know, just like you said, like you saw all those posters around campus and there were different tools employed to really make sure that people knew what was happening um, and also, you know, be clear about what we were asking for uh, and what we were doing and why um, it was important. Um, this also the class was super useful in talking to the media. Um, lots of newspapers showed up, um, some news crews. I had a bad hair day, so honestly, still resentful about that. That didn't help me there. Uh, but it, it also helped me. Um, so you know, having those conversations, making sure that I was using that time effectively and saying what was important and getting the priorities across. Um, it also helped me sort of consider the symbolism and the taking up space aspect. Um, 
right when we sort of like started having this idea, there was a big evolution of what it was going to look like. Um, and we purposely met in Mead Chapel because it's the heart of campus. Um, and then we went to the dining halls to interact with staff. Um, and the course really taught me about like going into places that are symbolic um, and being intentional with place and um, the meaning that that really um, portrays. So I, I, need, I think the, um, the case studies in class also were really helpful for me um, in just reflecting on what it means to have values and um, stand up for the good of all people. And I think it really reminded me about the power that can come with um, acting in that way. You mentioned evolution in that answer, which I thought was really interesting because um, I'm so interested in how protests have like start with an idea and then result in this huge action. And if you remember, like what exactly did that evolution look like? Yeah, so I mean, we were talking in class, right? Um, sort of about what we wanted to do, or you know, do does everyone want to do separate things? And da da da. da. And um, just a couple of weeks prior, that big article on the campus came out about unionizing um, conversations. And I was like, well, I think the staff should unionize. Um, now, this is something that I have no right to be saying. I'm not a staff member. I do not understand their experiences. I, um, you know, had had those conversations, had done, you know, a little bit of investigation, um, talking to uh, different leaders in um, staff relations at the school. But like, you know, not my personal strife. Um, and so from there, we sort of, I started having more and more conversations and began to get the pulse on what staff members were thinking. Um, and as in most union struggles, they were scared. Um, and a lot of people were not yet ready to unionize. Um, so from like going to like, oh, we should have a protest in support of staff unionization. I was like, okay, well, maybe that's not my place. Um, and then thinking more so, okay, well, throughout these conversations, what kept coming up is that like, well, you know, I'm not super ready to unionize, like I'm scared about this, that and the other, these benefits, but, you know, it's really nice to hear that a student actually cares, because this has never been expressed to me before. Um, so that's when it sort of evolved into this solidarity factor um, and demonstrating to staff that you know, students really want to appreciate the work that they're doing um, and to like want to support them through this process. And um, if at a point they are ready to unionize, that like students are ready to show up for them. Um, and then the the idea was like, okay, so we're going to meet in Mead Chapel and then we're going to march. And I was like, well, staff members are working at that time. Like, how do we make sure that they see us? Um, and I was like, and also, you know, showing appreciation through a march is one thing, but like what happens when we actually verbalize that appreciation? So that's when the leaving notes idea really um, came into play. So, you know, that was, those were ideas we had like over the two week time that um, the protest was planning. And honestly, like up until the last second, like tweaking that plan and, you know, deciding which, where are we gonna go to dining halls? Are we gonna go to, um, what are they, the place where they burn everything? I can never, what is it called? Oh, so I have a friend who, stack. yeah, I have a friend who runs tours and she doesn't know what it's called. So she makes up a different name for it every single time she gives a tour. Love that. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. The smokestack. Um, so, you know, trying to figure out where we could have the most, um, uh, like eyes on the subject and 
so you know that's sort of how that evolution occurred yeah I love that um how much you talked about solidarity and like showing them I mean very like tangibly that we're here not only at the time but also in the future so like if there's a call for unions and I've seen a lot of posters around campus now about that yeah. I was gonna ask you about that later um uh, but saying that like there's a huge coalition and also I know that you can't control the weather but I remember that day was freezing and snowing and the fact that over 200 people still showed up and still walked from Mead Chapel across campus to all the different dining halls and like wrote notes and everything just I think it added a level of like we don't care if it's cold we don't care if it's snowing like we're here yeah absolutely and I can't control the weather though I've tried I've tried I've tried one time <laughs> I wanted to ask very quickly um and this wasn't exactly in the notes but don't worry it's a softball um, in one of the campus articles, Tim Parsons, who's the um, staff council president, said that he doesn't believe that the wages would have been raised as quickly as they were if it weren't for this protest. What do you feel about the protest helped um, push the administration to action? Yeah, um, well, first and foremost, Tim has been a huge fighter in this. Um, one of the most valuable aspects of doing this organizing was connecting with him. Um, and forming, you know, it's a friendship. Um, and the way that Tim shows up for his fellow workers, um, you know, I don't wanna say it's admirable because I, I don't think solidarity in the workplace is like admirable. I think it's a foundational element, um, but he cares so deeply about this institution and about the people who keep it running. Um, so with that out of the way, um, hmm. I, so you, race rhetoric and protests coming into play, um, <laughs> right as soon as the administration heard that this was going on, I was called into the, uh, <clears throat> what is the opposite of me chapel? The other chapel, uh, chapel, the president's old chapel, the yeah. president's chapel. Uh, let's have a conversation with Miss Gottlieb because she's running her mouth again. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in those conversations, they, really just needed to solidify the fact that you know we were planning on doing this anyway like we you don't need to you know make a fuss about this we promise in the next budget it'll happen um and i mean what we did is we backed them into a corner right like we got a bunch of negative media um it's bad for their brand I, it, more than half of the jobs in addison county are jobs at this college um, oh, i didn't know that and yeah so like you know you're creating sort of this local compression of um like sort of distrust and this dismay and people are finding out about this and um you know i think even if it was an action they were planning on taking we definitely forced their hand in it um and there's there's no denying that um However, I, I think I'm not going to say that like we put this on their agenda. Um, we certainly moved it up on their agenda. We made it so they could not. Um, it's something that they've claimed has been on their agenda for a very long time, but seemingly has constantly moved off of the agenda. And we made that not an option anymore. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, totally. Because it seemed when I was reading through the articles that the they kept promising, you know, the next year they would raise them. There was a date, but then everything happened so quickly after this protest and that they just became more aware of it. So, yeah. And um, with that, if you could do this protest again, would what would you do differently if you want to do anything differently? Yeah, I think uh, 
really the goal, like we said, was to show that to workers, like we were ready to defend them and behind them if they wanted to unionize. Um, and I understand um, and have like continued to grow my understanding over the past, we don't know how long, two years um, of sort of how slow that unionization process is uh, in having those conversations. And, um, you know, we were working on more stories about staff injustices um, and considering what a union push could really look like at this school. Um, and there were more actions that were coming into play after the protest and then the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, while, you know, like the weather, another thing I can't really control, um, you know, something I would do differently is um, being able to continue on um, that work and continuing to have those conversations and um, sort of investigating how um, the school, sort of how I see it is like how they're acting in an antithesis to their values. Um, so, uh, that, that's an aspect and also you know it was um, a pretty sped along process um, and when they increase baseline wages which like yeah we should be um, we should have higher entry-level wages so that we're more competitive uh, and so that people don't have to have three jobs um, and in doing that major wage compression occurred um, so while I don't necessarily think I would change what we had asked or um, sort of the function of the protest, I'm incredibly cognizant of the negative effect that that had on a lot of long-term workers at the school. Uh, and I would have wished that we could have continued on in our fight together um, to mitigate that wage compression to consider, okay, well, to be completely honest, like wage compression is a great impetus to unionizing like that's why you need a union um, and just to people so people listening who might not understand what wage compression is can you just explain exactly what that phenomenon is yeah so okay my name's laura i've been working at middlebury for 25 years um, i'm on the custodial staff um you know every year as i work more and more for the school i get a raise right um maybe it's only 10 cents maybe it's a dollar who knows um i'm telling you it's a bit more like 10 cents at this school um so i've been working at the school for a really long time i'm finally making four dollars an hour more than an entry-level worker entry-level worker um wages just went up three dollars now i'm only making a dollar more and i've been i've invested 25 years of my life into this school um right yeah that's wage compression. Yeah, and those frustrations definitely came up in a lot of the articles. Of yeah, workers who were just saying like, it was all well and good to have higher paying entry level jobs, but what about the people who've dedicated so much time to this institution? Yeah. So on the note of a union and um, future involvements, I've seen a lot of posters around campus just in the past like two or three days about solidarity with staff and I was wondering just what exactly are those and what what is that about I have no idea uh I'm trying to figure that out I I mean well it's about consciousness raising right like Mm -hmm. let's tell people how many folks at this school rely on food stamps 
um, rely on the chaplain's fund, which is um, like a congregation of money that staff are able to use to pay their heating bills, to feed their families, to pay off their loans, um, and making sure that students and faculty know as they walk the hills of this school, um, what's going on and how our staff members are, um, you know, struggling. And so while I, if the person who is making these posters would like to email me, I would like to talk to them. Um, I've already photocopied a bunch of them and put more up. Uh, <laughs> sorry if I wasn't allowed to do that. Um, but yeah, I think it's a consciousness raising campaign and I'm really curious to see where they're going with it. Yeah, me too. I've literally just seen them in like, yeah, maybe the past two, three days and I'm very excited to see where that's going. I think that was another thing that really stuck, stood out to me from the protest two years ago was staff members saying, you know, it's Middlebury has a really great, um, like, oh, what's the word? Not incentive program, but like they have money you can put aside for a college fund for your kids. And like they have other really good programs like that, but you know, that's not helpful if you can't put food on the table. Like if you're still on food stamps, if you're still working three jobs, like what are you supposed to do with that? Yeah, I mean, from what I've, in the conversations I've had with a lot of staff members, they really, especially once you've been working here for such a long time and like their kids have gone to college because the mm -hmm. school's benefits, they're really worried that if they unionized, on. that the penalty is going to be that think benefits like that are negated. And, oh shit, I've been working at this goddamn school for 20 years so I can get my kid to college and they're two years away from being in college and now we've unionized and suddenly I don't have that benefit and now my kid's not going to school and the reason why I've been cleaning toilets for 20 years is to provide them with that social mobility like one that's a fear-mongering tactic of the school whether it's intentional or not um, and two like that is a legitimate fear yeah absolutely um do you know if the school has been actually threatening things like that or if that's just a, like an idea that that might happen they don't need they don't need to explicitly threaten it um i think i mean without going too much into like union history um or just scare tactics in general um it really just comes down to like workers consciousness um and then you know a certain level of comfort that comes with just like your job and something you've been that's stayed, you know, relatively the same over the past 20 years. Um, and it's scary, Nego union negotiations are scary. And a lot of times, uh, I mean, a, a lot of working class people have been scared into thinking that they are ineffective and infringement on their rights. Um, and the school doesn't need to do that. American society does it for them. Yeah, it was interesting. I think you said earlier how you use the values of the school to push this protest as well. And I was discussing something similar with Leave last week about um, divestment. And I think it, the same speaks to this protest where you're saying, look, this is a school that has classes on protest, a school that has sociology classes on labor, and then tells its staff not to unionize. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. No. No. <laughs> I mean, well, at the end of the day, like this is a private money-making institution. Like we can't forget that. Um, it's really funny to like 
such a wake-up call, right? Like, I went to this really conservative public high school, and, um, like, to me, Middlebury was this golden ticket. Not golden ticket into the elite, though. Um, I think one can argue that that is also true, uh, but sort of, like, golden ticket of like this liberal bubble where I can take classes just like you said on race rhetoric and protest and like I'm in sociology of labor right now like a place where radicalism um, and education really merge Um, and like this school has made me super critical of um, the very uh, institutions that it upholds and is compliant with um, or complicit with rather. So, you know, it's ironic, um, but if anything, it, this, this school has also shown me like, that's the role of private institutions. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's namely Middlebury's fault. It's not. Um, do I think we could be leading the way in ways that we're not? Do I think that we should be building affordable housing for our staff members? Uh, Do I think that if we were able to unionize and radicalize this campus in a way that was like really community-based and, you know, um, we're not just telling our students to vote, but this is about staff voting and raising consciousness of all people who are part of this community. Like we would see a massive, shift in the community at large. And I'm not just talking Middlebury, I'm talking about the entire county. Um, I don't necessarily think that the Middlebury administration is opposed to that. Um, But at the end of the day, their six figure salary comes with them continuing to bolster money for the school and make it look good. And yeah, that's a lot of minds they gotta change and uh, a lot of legwork that will need to be done to try to make those shifts. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's especially kind of funny in a sad way that you were like speaking to the administration about this and not, it wasn't even just a protest that you were like, we're gonna have this protest. Like it was a protest stemming out of a class that is hosted on this campus. And they are like, we don't want you to do this. <laughs> just interesting. Yeah, I mean, they, they didn't say they didn't want me to do it. That's the one thing. They were very supportive uh, in an incredibly undermining way. Uh, you know, they're covering their asses, which they're very good at. Um, <laughs> stopping myself. Um, yeah, I mean, they they were all about, you know, this is our value and we support higher wages and we are not against anything that you're advocating for. And, you know, we are really proud of you for using your voice. Just like, I don't need you to say that. Um, I'm not asking for your validation whatsoever. Um, Actually, you're wasting my time right now. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting too, like we're talking about sort of this values thing and the people who decide to work at this school with some slash fair to mildingly large-ish uh, portion of people. Um, like they self-select to come here and to work here because they believe in the mission um, and in certain values. Um, and I don't think like in their positions, they lose sight of that. Um, but I think in those positions, sometimes they have to prioritize other things over that. And I have okay. never been in that position. So I 
am not really one to necessarily criticize that. Come back to me in 20 years and hopefully I will not have a job like that. <laughs> yeah, well, honestly, graduating into a pandemic, who's having a job at all? Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of other work that you do, um, work that is not running administrations, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the organizing that you've been doing um, this uh, this past semester, because I know that you were doing some organizing in your hometown and mostly there's a little bit about what that was, but mostly what is organizing online like? How is it different? How did you use the skills that you have from in-person organizing to go online or was it a totally different set of skills? Yeah, so I took last semester off, which also like really disjointed me from the campus, which is like why I have no idea what these posters are around campus. I don't even know who these people are walking around campus. What a wake up call. Um, <laughs> online organizing sucks. Um, I resent my cell phone. I resent my laptop. Um, I worked on a congressional campaign um, over the summer and then I started uh, working on a campaign in my local K through 12 school to um, address some pretty major issues in school culture, curriculum, and uh, school leadership that was uh, racist, xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic, you name it. Like that is the environment I grew up in. Uh, and as I was doing that work, I started realizing that this was not just a the school I went to problem. Um, this was a uh, regional problem and a state problem. I'm from New York State. Uh, and I started looking into education law and uh, the policies enacted in the state. So um, I launched a campaign for culturally responsive education in New York State. Um, and really, it's a difficult push right now because they're barely even passing a budget. Um, Governor Cuomo has flatlined the education budget in New York State for the past four years. Um, the education sector in New York is $4 billion uh, underfunded. And that, wow. depending on how negotiations go over the next month, like that number may only be growing. So culturally responsive education funding is not going to be happening in New York State over the next year. Uh, but what we're doing is we're putting it on the legislative agenda um, and really emphasizing to the state that this is a priority. Um, and the way that we're doing that is we're working uh, with local schools to try to make it an education priority to, um, for them. And in doing so, um, our hope is to indicate to the larger state um, that this is something that not just New York City is doing, um, but that upstate schools are taking seriously and trying to enact, but that they need funding and they need support from the state. Um, uh, as for like the skills, um, well, I don't like the internet. I hate Zoom. Um, as you can tell, I move my hands around a lot. Bad for Zoom. Uh, and we do. <laughs> what it's great for is connecting with a lot of people. Uh, and mm -hmm. I have connected with so many people over these past year, people who I never would have met um, all across New York State um, because we're able to sort of transcend those boundaries that once existed. So having these conversations, connecting ideas, I think that translates directly from in real life to online. Um, I think also just like strategy of messaging is a little bit different when things have like shifted to very online. Um, I, we actually have done in-person protests, um, which I, we did, um, 
we did quite a few more like marches. They were all, everyone was socially distanced and they were completely silent. Um, and what we did is we walked through um, low-income neighborhoods and affordable housing units and had people come up to us, similarly taking up that space, making them question why we're there and ask us questions about what the school system is like in the area and why um, this is something that we're advocating for. So, uh, you know, sort of learning to pivot in that way and um, in a way like while we've all been distanced and it's sort of been like caging in a way and dehumanizing of people. Um, I think there's been an opportunity to just like really try to connect with people, um, which I've appreciated. Skills wise, I don't know. I'm just gonna throw my phone in the trash. I just, yeah. <laughs> I know as soon as I get the first vaccine, the, the phone is just it's leaving. I can't. I... I love how you mentioned using the same tactics that you saw when you were like two or three in the protests that you're doing now, like just showing up and like having people ask questions. It's, it's kind of beautifully full circle. I should write something about this. You've helped yeah, me you realize should. something. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should. Like, that's really cool. So sweet, I think those are actually all of my questions, which is awesome, because that leaves us plenty of time for this game. So at the end of excited. Okay. At the end of every episode, I have a game where okay, so usually it's I have like real or fake quotes from people who are against the protest. But I couldn't find anyone who wanted to go on record being like, no, we shouldn't raise that bridges. Cause like um, I would have told you if I did. So instead, <laughs> there was a letter that Lori Patton sent out about um, workforce planning and layoffs that were coming because of the rising staff wages and changing the staff system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the letter as a whole was a like, decent, but there were a couple phrases in there that were a bit off-putting. So I'm gonna read three phrases and after each one, you have to tell me whether this is real or whether it's fake, I made it up. And just so the listeners know, I'm going in fully blind because I delete every single one of those emails and do not open them. Nice. <laughs> yeah, all right, so the first one is, we must ensure that the work we have identified as unnecessary actually goes away. I fucking hope that's not real, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that's true. Yep, that's true. She was talking in context about how they're laying off all jobs that they see as unnecessary, but then to add the sentence seemed a little too far for me personally. Huh. Well, I am somebody who is all for efficiency. Um, however, I feel like if you are going to make that claim in an email, um, one, adding insult to injury, two, um, I'm questioning like what is deemed necessary and unnecessary. And it's like, okay, so you've decided that, well, what's your contingency? Because you are a pillar of this community and you're something that's like really interesting, especially during the whole pandy we're in. Um, like how Middlebury is like really emphasized how important the town is and town relationships and things like that. It's like, okay, well, now you're saying you're laying all these people off and what are you going to do about that? Huh, yeah. I guess write a <laughs> shitty sentence in an email. Okay, let me get the next one. All right, number two is our consulting team found that a number of you are working multiple jobs. In order to alleviate the pressure of working more than one job, we have decided to terminate a number of Middlebury positions. 
No. I, no. <laughs> Don't worry. Okay. I made that one up. Okay, good. I was like, whoa. <laughs> oh, got it. Yeah, fear not. She did not say that. Okay, the last one is... <laughs> We've had to lay off 150 jobs, but the good news is that we're actually going to, uh, let me try that again. We have to lay off 150 jobs, but the good news is that we're actually only going to lay off 90 jobs. So like, you're welcome. Well, it sounds like she essentially said that in an email. Correct. She didn't say that verbatim, but that's the entire vibe of the email was that we're actually laying off fewer jobs than we said we would. So congrats. So we made you really fearful and job insecure um, during an entire time of insecurity where all we've emphasized is the value of community and the importance of being here together. Uh, but that only matters for our rich students. It doesn't matter for anyone else. And it certainly doesn't matter for our staff. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, 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 that's exactly what the cool. email was. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Oh, well, I can see why I didn't read this email, so I should probably start doing that again now that I'm on campus. Yeah, they don't say anything anyway, it's fine. Wow, So that's the last thing I just wanna ask is um, if you have anything else that you wanna add that I skipped over, any questions, anything else that you wanna talk about for this protest or future protests on campus? Yeah, I mean, Really all I can say um, is I think this time has been really difficult for all of us, right? Like that goes without saying. Well, everyone says it constantly. So I guess it doesn't go without saying. It gets said constantly. Um, still true. And it, it is still true. Um, I think something to keep in mind is like what's happening after all of this, you know, goes away, right? Like. Um, so many, so much inequality has been exacerbated and unveiled throughout uh, the past year. Um, and that is the same for Middlebury. We are not immune to that. Um, something I've been thinking a lot about is how a lot of staff on campus have been relocated and separated. Um, you know, they used to work in this building and they've been working there for like 10 years with the same five people and now they're in a different building and they've lost a lot of that connection community that they had. Um, and they, yeah. meanwhile, they're like working like crazy to keep students safe. Um, and I think just being cognizant of that and something I've really learned, I think over the past year, that's really been reaffirmed to me uh, is just to always reframe yourself to understand you know, where's somebody coming from? What are their daily experiences right now? Um, how does that making them feel insecure, be it in their job, in their future, uh, in them, their selves, um, in their family life? Like always just coming back to that and, um, you know, being cognizant about how that's affecting everyone every day. Um, and like, yeah, I've seen those posters, right? Um, I think in reminding ourselves that even through this struggle, um, it's not to compare struggles, um, but that there is so much more going on under the surface and that people might be distracted right now, um, but that when things circle back, like this is still gonna be a problem uh, and it's going to continue to be a problem until we take, we make major strides as a community and as an institution towards a more equitable and just model for just like being 
So that's, I guess, what I would say, which is pretty all over the map, but that's sort of oh, I love I that. That's perfect. It's honestly perfect. I feel especially like it shouldn't take a pandemic for vandalisms on campus to stop. And it didn't take a pandemic. There was the vandalism last week and a staff member got injured. And it's just oh. like the fact that, you know, there is a huge student movement and to show solidarity and to show that we care and that there is still so much more work to do and so much more um, effort to put into our communities to say like, look, wake up, like you're causing physical harm to people who are like, are making this campus like a safe livable place for you like you know grow up essentially grow up yeah yeah well thank you so much for this was awesome i learned a lot like a lot a lot so that was Aww, great thanks. thank you for all the work that you do always and i'm very grateful to know you and i'm very happy that you came on this pod so thank you Celia. Well, thank you for having me. It was lovely and great to see your face, even if it is in the Zoom box that I only resent every other day. <laughs> I'd like to thank Celia again for coming on the show to talk to me today. As always, I learned a ton about the movement and also about how to effectively be an advocate for your cause. I just massively admire the work that she does and the solidarity that she has with others. And I'm very grateful that she carved out the time to chat with me this afternoon.